Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Willie, Harry, Stee, Harry, Dick, John, Harry, three. One, two, three, Neds, Richard, two. Henry is four, five, six. Then who? Edwards, four, five. Dick the Bad. Harry's Twain. We are still on Harry's Twain. We are doing Twain episodes. We did a general introduction to Henry VIII in the previous episode, and we looked at his earlier life leading up to his marriage with Catherine of Aragon. And in this episode, I'm going to look at what happens after that. Now, if you look at any British coin, you'll see the words FIDDEF or just the initials FD. And you've probably seen that and thought, mm, I don't know what that means. Some old Latin nonsense, probably. Uh, well, it is Latin, but FIDDEF is short for Fidei Defensor, Defender of the Faith, or Defensatrix, if it relates to a queen. And that is a title that originally could only be bestowed on a monarch by the Pope, which is what happened to Henry VIII in 1521. And it's quite ironic that Henry VIII, who was the man who severed our ties to the Pope, was originally the defender of the faith. And this came about because in 1521 he published a document. And as I said in the last episode, he did a lot of writing and thinking and was very interested in sort of philosophy and theology. And as I say, in 1521, he wrote a devout and well-informed piece called Assertio Septum Sacramentorum, Defence of the Seven Sacraments. And really, it was a defence of papal authority, saying the Pope is the ultimate religious authority and that everybody should do what the Pope tells them to. And Pope Leo X, who was the Pope at the time, bestowed on Henry this title of 
Fidei Defensor, which is, as I say, still on our coins, despite the fact that later on in his reign, Henry was actually excommunicated by a later pope. But at this point, he was considered by the pope a great defender of the faith. The interesting thing is that Henry spent a lot of his reign trying to keep the popes happy. And in many ways, this document was him sucking up to the Pope. We looked in the last episode about these Italian wars, where all these different powers were essentially fighting over Italy, which was not a unified country. It was made up of all these city-states. And there was the Pope there in Rome. And the Pope was always trying to get allies um, to help him uh, maintain his power and his wealth. And so various monarchs would sort of vie for position to say, oh, look, oh, oh, Pope, Pope, look at me, look at me. I think you're great. So I'll just quickly recap who the big players are in Europe at this time. Obviously, we have France at the heart of it. Then to the north, you have the Germanic part of the Holy Roman Empire, the northern Habsburg power block under Emperor Maximilian. And below France... There is this new kind of superpower, Spain, which becomes the southern part of the Habsburg power block when Ferdinand and Isabella's daughter, Juana, sister of Catherine of Aragon, marries Philip Habsburg and their son becomes Charles V of Spain. So as we saw, we have this hugely powerful family, the Habsburgs, and they have now doubled the size of their territories by adding Spain. And as I say, in Italy, you have these various different states vying for power with each other and with the Pope. And Italy is the focus of all this imperial activity as everyone is fighting for influence there. And if anybody can be said to win this war or at least come out on top, it's Spain who under Charles V eventually gained supremacy in Italy. Charles V even takes over Rome and, and in a way takes the Pope hostage, which means that he and the Pope are kind of in cahoots. And remember, Charles V is the nephew of Catherine of Aragon. So he and the Pope are now extremely averse to the idea that Henry might want to leave her. So over in England, we have Henry VIII there, who would very much like to be a major player in Europe but he finds it hard and ruinously expensive because at this time England is just this little country across the water without a great deal of money and power. But Henry would love to be one of the big boys and um, fighting in Europe and gaining military glory. And one of the things he tries to do is to keep the popes happy. But one of the difficulties is that during Henry's lifetime, there are seven different popes. The problem with the pope is popes hold the post until they die. So it means that the next pope in line is quite old by the time they get to the throne because they're waiting till these other guys fall off the perch. So a lot of these popes take up the position when they're fairly elderly and don't last long. I mean, Pius III only lasted 26 days, but most of them are only really there for sort of between five and ten years. And so it's quite difficult to, to keep the Pope happy, and each Pope will have their own allegiance, their, their own favourite. 
So the Pope at any one time is leaning towards France or leaning towards Maximilian or leaning towards Ferdinand and Habsburgs in Spain. And Henry is trying to sort of get in there and and, uh, please whichever Pope he can. And he starts out doing quite well. I'd say Pope Leo X makes him defender of the faith in England. This is before he decides that he wants to try and get rid of Catherine of Aragon as his wife. Catherine of Aragon, as we were just talking about, being one of the daughters of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, who Henry VII originally married to Henry VIII's big brother Arthur in order to try and cement his relationship with the newly dominant Spanish. Henry knows he doesn't have much of a chance in Italy. It's too far away. It would be just too expensive. He doesn't have any physical influence there. But he does indulge in the age-old English sport of attacking the French. So Henry tries to get involved in these wars, supposedly allied with his father-in-law Ferdinand. But Ferdinand is a slippery customer and keeps kind of switching his allegiances. But but Henry tries to have a go. And in, in, in 1513, he takes an army over and leads them into the Low Countries. He gets very little support from his other ally, Maximilian, the Holy Roman Emperor. But he does win this sort of, it was called a battle, but it wasn't much more of a skirmish. Became known as the Battle of the Spurs because essentially the French retreated and they were largely a cavalry army. And the English and some of Maximilian's guys gave chase on their horses. And so it became, in their minds, this great victory, this great cavalry battle. And like a stuffy old colonel, Henry lived on the fame of this success for the rest of his life because he didn't really have a lot of military success because he didn't have the money or the manpower to back it up. The population of France at this time was six times that of England. So you've got manpower there, but you've also got money coming in from taxation. And by the time Charles V comes to the throne in Spain, his income was seven times larger than Henry's because we looked at how the Spanish expanded into America and brought back vast amounts of gold from there. Henry VIII's whole reign is dogged by his lack of money. He wants to be a major international player. He wants overseas glory in battle. He wants a big, lavish court. He wants to build palaces, but he doesn't quite have the income. And this is a big driving force behind the Reformation, which we will come on to. Henry's reign gets off on the wrong foot right from the start. The first thing he does on taking the throne as a sort of populist move, a sort of Liz Trust-style anti-taxation gambit, he arrests and executes his father's two chief tax collectors, the men who were behind this huge taxation drive that Henry VII had put in place to try to balance the books. So Henry kills them and says, hurrah, look at me, I'm the man who cut taxes. And for the rest of his reign, he has to borrow money from Italian bankers in the Low Countries. But this foray into Europe is Henry's first move in this great game of risk. So we have this Battle of the Spurs, which Henry keeps banging on about it. And he and Maximilian publish this joint account of their victories under the title, and please excuse my German pronunciation, which will be terrible, but it was uh, published under the title 
Kopie von der Erlichen und Kosslichen Epfahung und Frontliche Erbichtung des Kungs von England, Kaiser Maximilian, in Bickety Gethen und von dem Angriff und Neidelung Selbstworte Bohne geschacken, uch was und wei will Volk do gewassen, erschlagen und gefangen, uch die Belangerung der Stadt Bonnet und anders seltsam Gesnichten, which can be roughly translated as the English and Germans twat the French. But while Henry is away in Europe on these frankly pretty silly manoeuvres, the Scots decide to invade. The Scots who are always in cahoots with the French. And as is the way, whilst the king is away, his queen is in charge in England. So Catherine of Aragon supervises putting together an English army under the command of the Earl of Surrey, and they march up and give battle to the Scots at the Battle of Flodden. And the Scottish king, James IV, is killed in the fighting, which makes him the last monarch from Great Britain to die in battle. And as well as James, quite a number of the Scottish nobility are killed as well. So this creates a sort of crisis in Scotland. And it does mean that the Scottish threat is greatly diminished. Henry tried to push this further. So a new Scottish king came to power. He was only a minor. He was James V. And his mother was Henry's sister, Margaret. So Henry was hoping for better relations with Scotland. At the same time, he married another of his sisters, Mary, to the decrepit French king, Louis XII. So Henry is hoping that the Scots and the French will at least get off his back. And his chief minister, Cardinal Wolsey, really gets to work trying to nail things down and create these treaties. And he had a big success at the Treaty of London in 1518, at which he brought together all of these major European superpowers in this idea of creating universal peace. And on the back of this, Henry goes over to France and has a big summit with the French king on the borders between Calais and France, Calais being the last English territory there. And they have this great lavish do, which becomes known as the field of the cloth of gold, because they have all these sort of very fancy gold tents. And Henry sees this as a great triumph. Here he is as a statesman in Europe, having his version of a sort of Bilderbung get together. But this treaty goes the way of all these treaties. I've said it before. Any of you that have played Risk will know you make a treaty purely for your own advancement and you fully intend to break it at the first opportunity. Um, and this seems to be what happened with all these treaties in history. For the time being, it gives you a breathing space. You can charge your batteries. You can build up your forces. But then as soon as conditions are right, you're going to break the treaty and go to war again. Particularly as despite Henry's efforts as being this international statesman who can bring these people together, nobody really took him that seriously. And the war in Italy is still ongoing. And eventually Henry tries to attack the French again, but doesn't really have the money. And that goes nowhere. And England is not doing very well at this time. Economically, it is struggling. And what happens in England is what still happens today. Uh, in 1517, there were riots against immigrant Flemish workers 
because it was all their fault. It was all the fault of the immigrants. And this was known as the evil May Day. Uh, I mean, the, the king and the queen did uh, round up the rioters and execute some of them. But um, that, I, that, I think, is an indication of the sort of discontent that was simmering in England. So that's a kind of historical background to what's going on and to why Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon was actually politically quite an important one. And he knew that if he did anything to upset her, this would cause repercussions, particularly, obviously, in Spain. But her first child miscarried and her second, a son, Prince Henry, only survived for a few days. She conceived four times after that, but only one of those conceptions led to a successful birth, which was Princess Mary in 1516. By 1519, Henry was worried enough to bring some Spanish doctors over to examine her, by which time she's, she's 34 years old and... As far as it was seen at the time, she's reaching the end of her, her fertile years. And Henry was not exactly faithful to her. He had several mistresses during his reign. One of the first was Mary Boleyn, the other Boleyn girl, Anne's sister, who was one of Catherine's ladies-in-waiting. Another of his mistresses was Elizabeth Blount, or Blunt, who gave birth to a son, in 1519, Henry Fitzroy. Fitz, as we looked at before, is a name you give to an illegitimate son, and Roy means king. So Henry Fitzroy is the Henry, the illegitimate son of the king. But he still had status, and he was still part of the royal court. And, you know, people have looked at Henry VIII and have said, you know, where does the problem lie with his inability to have a male heir. He did manage it twice, once with Henry Fitzroy and later on with the boy who eventually became Edward VI. So um, I think the jury is still out and the doctors are still debating on as to why he struggled to father sons. So Henry Fitzroy is welcomed into his court and he's made the Duke of Richmond and Somerset. Unfortunately, similarly to Edward VI, Henry Fitzroy died whilst he was still a teenager. That's not because he was congenitally unsound or anything. It was just that there were a lot of very nasty diseases around for which there were no cures. Henry was worried. You know, he's, he's in his mid-30s and, you know, his father had died when he was 52. His grandfathers had died. One was 26, one was 41. He wasn't really looking forward to a long and healthy life. He was a man in a hurry. But his only heir at this point is his daughter, Mary. And unless things change, England is heading towards having a female on the throne for the first time. Now, Catherine of Aragon didn't see that this was a problem at all. She was the daughter of Isabella of Castile, who we saw in the last episode is this very powerful and influential woman who jointly ruled with Ferdinand. So Catherine was saying, you know, what's the problem? Women can rule just as well as men. But Henry was desperate for a male heir and he started looking at ways to separate from Catherine. There was no such thing as divorce, but you could get a marriage annulled. 
and he tried to get the marriage annulled on the grounds that he should never have married his brother's widow. He found a passage in Leviticus in the Old Testament that said that if a man had sexual relations with his brother's wife, they would be childless. And he was thinking, I shouldn't have married her. This was against God. He'd been very reluctant to marry her in the first place and had only done it when he came to the throne, mainly for political reasons. And now he's thinking, oh, you know, God is against me. Now, the thing about the Old Testament is that it basically means whatever you want it to mean. You can find a lot of rules in there, but you can also go to a different book of the Bible and find rules that say the opposite. In Deuteronomy, brothers are ordered to marry a widowed sister-in-law if she had no sons in order to provide a surrogate heir for their dead brother. But Henry fixed on Leviticus and, and really wasn't sure what to do. And the Pope wasn't helping. The Pope thought Henry was trying to get the marriage annulled on political grounds, that he wanted to remarry a different woman within Europe to ally himself with a different power base. And he was worried that this might be a plot against his own power, the Pope's own power. So the Pope said, no, 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 this is not grounds for an annulment. Wolsey tried to help with no great success. By this point, Henry had moved on from Mary to her sister, Anne, who seems to have been this very charismatic and self-assured young woman. Henry became absolutely fixated on her, but she said, I guess, having seen what happened with her sister, she said, I'm not going to bed with you unless you marry me. I'm not going to be your mistress. I'm not going to be a sexual plaything that you throw aside. And Anne was also very interested in these new religious movements coming out of Northern Europe. This new idea of Protestantism, this idea that the Pope was corrupt and had no right to be the head of the church, that there was no biblical justification for this and that each person was free to reach God by their own means. And she read a lot and she got around her these um, interesting and influential men who were interested in these new movements and ideas. And she started working on Henry. And Henry was interested and he was starting to see that this might be a way out of his problem. But Cardinal Wolsey, his chief advisor, was saying, no, 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 we can't go against the Pope. Now, I'm sorry, I'm throwing these names like Cardinal Wolsey into the mix on the assumption that people know who I'm talking about. But I can't make that assumption. So I'm just going to digress slightly here because there are four men who had a big influence on Henry's life. And through these four men, we can sort of follow the story of Henry's reign. And what's crazy is that they were all called Thomas. Obviously, it was a popular name at the time. So let's look at the four Thomases. The first of them is this guy, Thomas Wolsey, who we can see as his first right-hand man. He was a great statesman. He was a bishop. He had worked for Henry's father, Henry VII. And when Henry became king, he really relied on Wolsey. He made him Archbishop of York, which was the second most powerful and influential clerical position after the Archbishop of Canterbury. And later on, he was made a cardinal by Pope Leo X. So he's often called Cardinal Wolsey. 
as a cardinal, he had authority over the Archbishop of Canterbury. And because at this time the Pope was senior to the King of England, in some ways Cardinal Wolsey could be seen almost as being superior to King Henry VIII. But Henry used him a lot, and the guy was running the country so much that he was sometimes called, probably behind his back, certainly behind the King's back, Alter Rex, the other king. I suppose the relationship today is very much like you would have between, say, King Charles and the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister organises the business of running the country and the King organises the business of being a king. And things go great with Cardinal Wolsey until we get to this business of Henry wanting to split up with his wife, Catherine of Aragon. And Wolsey, as a cardinal, his loyalty was to the Pope. And he said to Henry, look, I will help you try to dissolve this marriage to get it annulled. But if the Pope doesn't agree to it, then I have to go with what the Pope says. I work for him more than I work for you. And he tries, he tries to get the Pope to annul the marriage. But Wolsey fails. The Pope won't annul the marriage. Henry says, in that case, I'm going to have to break away from the Pope. And Wolsey says, I can't support you in that. And Henry says, well, in that case, you know, I'm going to have you arrested. He puts Wolsey under house arrest. This business rumbles on. And eventually Wolsey is called to London ostensibly to stand trial, but he dies on the way. So that is the end of Cardinal Wolsey. So now we come to the next of our four key men at court, Sir Thomas More. And he was very much opposed to the Reformation. He remained Catholic to the end. He was a judge, a philosopher, an author, an intellectual. He famously came up with the word utopia in a book he published in 1516 called Utopia, which describes the political system of an imaginary island state in the Americas. And it's his idea of setting down his ideal. I'm searching for the word here, but the only word for it is, is utopian, which he made up. The word has come to mean an, an idyllic place. So this is his utopian ideal of what a well-run country would look like. And after Wolsey is out of the picture, Thomas More becomes Chancellor. But he is very much opposed to the Protestant Reformation. And he writes various pamphlets attacking the whole idea. Uh, he won't accept Henry as supreme head of the Church of England. He won't accept the annulment of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. He won't take an oath of supremacy. And eventually he too is convicted of treason and is executed. And he reportedly said just before his death, I die the king's good servant and God's first. And in 1935, Pope Pius XI canonised more, made him a saint and a martyr. Uh, and Pope John Paul II in 2000 declared him to be the patron saint of statesmen and politicians. So whether you think that's an honour or not, I don't know. And one of the other things that Thomas More did was he wrote A History of Richard III, which is seen as very much a work of Tudor propaganda. In our episodes on Edward V and Richard III, we saw how even today there's this great controversy raging about whether Richard was a good or an evil man. And people are very passionate about it. I've had some angry tweets. And Thomas More is often cited by the Ricardians as being the key player in this conspiracy against Richard because he was trying to legitimise the reign of the Tudors. The third of our Thomases 
is Thomas Cromwell, who was the hero, or at least the central character, in Hilary Mantel's enormously popular Wolf Hall series, where this part of Henry's reign is seen through Cromwell's eyes, played wonderfully by Mark Rylance in the TV series, although he looked nothing like Thomas Cromwell from the paintings, where he is this coarse, stout, grim-looking guy. And Cromwell is really interesting. He came from a very ordinary background. He grew up in Putney, where his father was a cloth merchant and also owned a pub and a brewery. But Thomas was an ambitious and clever young guy, and he eventually made his way to the court and worked his way up, serving as a statesman and a, a lawyer. And he was the chief minister of Henry VIII from 1534 to 1540. And he became Henry's enforcer. So Henry wanted to break away from Catholicism. But it seems he wasn't totally committed to this idea. He worried all his life whether he was going to go to hell. He had strong religious beliefs. Everyone did. And he was not sure if he'd done the right thing, if he had committed a terrible, terrible sin. And it seems that he never really became a Protestant. Perhaps he was keeping his options open, but he carried on celebrating the Mass and behaving like a Catholic until his death. And it was only really when his son Edward VI came to the throne that the idea that the royals were fully Protestant rather than Catholic was solidified, briefly. But Cromwell was the guy who pushed this through. So Henry may have been vacillating, a bit wishy-washy, well, I'm not sure, but Cromwell saying, no, we're going for this, we're doing this. Maybe it was partly from his background that he came from. He didn't like the high and mighty. He didn't like the authority of the Pope sitting over there in Rome with all his riches telling people what to do. And he was an iconoclast. It was, let's kick out the old and bring in the new. And he really pushed through Henry's reforms. He was a hated man as a result, but he went for it. He was instrumental in helping Henry get rid of Catherine and get Anne Boleyn made his queen. But then he fell out with Anne and he was instrumental in putting this plot together against her, creating this idea that Anne had a conspiracy against the king and was sleeping with all and sundry and was instrumental in getting her executed, which meant that Henry was free to marry Jane Seymour. And I'm sure many of you know the somewhat flippant and disrespectful ditty, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. So you'll know that poor Jane Seymour died. By now, Cromwell was the chief man at Henry's court, and he pushed for a political marriage, looking overseas for a wife rather than amongst the pretty girls at court. And he's instrumental in getting Henry to marry Anne of Cleves. But Henry did not like Anne of Cleves. He hated the idea of the marriage. He thought Cromwell had steamrolled him into something he didn't want. And Henry then cooked up a plot against Cromwell and had Cromwell executed. This is the way that Henry went about things. He used his extreme powers to keep people under control. He was forever accusing people of things, trying them, executing them. And he used this idea of the act of attainder, which is a way of getting round the law. It's a piece of nasty legal cheating where you can declare someone guilty in attainder, which removes all their civil rights, 
It means they don't need to have a proper trial. You could just accuse them of something and bump them off if that is your will. And they forfeit their right to own any property. So Henry was always doing this to various wealthy men. So he could essentially nick their lands and their wealth and keep it for himself. You know, it was a rule of terror in so many ways. As we shall see, Cromwell himself ended up being accused of a conspiracy against the king. And Henry saw him as a useful scapegoat for the unpopularity of the Protestant reforms. He was the villain who had pushed it all too far. And Henry arrested him, nicked his lands, gave them to his new fiancée, Catherine Howard, and then executed him on the same day that he married Catherine. And his reign never really recovered. He needed that strength and determination of Cromwell. And things kind of went from bad to worse after that fact. Now, the interesting thing about Thomas Cromwell is quite a lot of what he did is reminiscent of Oliver Cromwell. This idea of something starts small and then it snowballs and then he pushes it through and he wants to change the country. And I've always wondered, oh, they got the same name, were they related? And they were, in fact. Thomas Cromwell's sister Catherine was still living in Putney. She fell in love with a brewer from Glamorgan called Morgan Ap William, and they married. And their great-great-grandson was Oliver Cromwell. And now we get to the fourth and final of our four Thomases, Thomas Cranmer. And he was in some ways the sort of the opposite of Sir Thomas More. He was the devout Protestant priest. He wanted to go along with this new regime, this new way of doing things. And he was one of the main leaders of the English Reformation. Henry made him Archbishop of Canterbury. He outlived Henry, carried on into Edward VI's reign when Protestantism really became a big thing. And for a short time, he was Archbishop of Canterbury under Mary I. So he had helped build the case for the annulment of Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon. And on the back of that, he supported the principle of royal supremacy, the idea that Henry is now the undisputed and only head of the English church. And Cranmer wrote and published the first book of common prayer, Protestant prayer book, and so was instrumental in putting in these changes. So Cromwell is a sort of political fixer, but Cranmer was the religious fixer. And as you'll probably know from your history, when Mary came to the throne after young King Edward VI died, she tried to bring Catholicism back. And she started burning bishops and archbishops at the stake for heresy if they declared themselves to be Protestant. And Cranmer was caught up in that. We will see in the episode on Mary the details of that, but she essentially burned him at the stake. By this point, he'd been tortured, he'd recanted, he'd said, oh, actually, no, I'll, I'll, I'll be a Catholic. I was a Catholic all along, hoping that it would get him off. But Mary said, nah, burn him anyway. And as he was tied to the stake, he said, nah, sod it, I'm a Protestant, sod the lot of you. And he was famously lumped together with Latimer and Ridley. It's one of the few things I remember from school history. Cranmer, Latimer and Ridley, these three Protestant bishops, archbishops, burned by Mary who since has been called Bloody Mary. Although, as we've seen with Henry, he was far worse than Mary. He should have been called Bloody Henry, really. So to get back to our story, Henry has been married to Catherine for 20 years and she hasn't given him a son. 
and now the likes of Thomas Cranmer and Thomas Cromwell and Anne Boleyn herself are telling Henry to ditch the Pope. Because there's this new movement growing through Europe, Protestantism. I say it's new, the roots go back a long way. We saw in early episodes that round about the time of the Black Death in England, we had the birth of the Lollards, with preachers saying the people don't need fat cat priests and wealthy popes to connect with God. It's not justified by anything in the Bible. People can find their own path to God. And these thoughts have been fermenting throughout Europe. And it's like the new cool thing, the new radicalism, supported by modern thinkers, such as Anne Boleyn, who was very smart, very well read. She was open to all that was going on in the world. She was woke. And it seems to be in the more northern parts of Europe that the idea of Protestantism really takes hold. And the focal point of this is this man Martin Luther, who we touched on in the last episode. He was a German priest, an intellectual, and he was a real ornery type, an extremely persuasive speaker, a stubborn man on a mission, railing against corruption in the Catholic Church. So he hated Catholics. He hated Jews, as always seems to be the way, unfortunately. And he becomes the focal point of, well, of the Reformation. And the big change here is this relatively new technology of the printing press. We looked in the last episode at how Luther was able to mass print his declarations, his leaflets, if you like. He printed them quickly and spread them round Europe quickly, too. And in 1517, he nailed his 35 theses to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg. This was like his declaration, declaration of war against the Catholics, if you like. And he refused to renounce his views at a later hearing. It was a trial, I guess, known as the Diet of Worms or the Diet of Worms. I'm sorry if I'm not correctly pronouncing it, but it's a lot more fun just to call it the Diet of Worms. And he was excommunicated, but the fuse was lit. Now, his driving force seemed to be a violent dislike of the Pope. He even went so far as to argue that the Ottomans, this Muslim empire exploding out of Turkey, who were threatening Europe from the east, should be left unchecked because they might be the instrument to destroy the Antichrist, who, as far as Luther was concerned, was the Pope the whore of Babylon. So this was the new way, the new path that Cranmer and Cromwell and Anne Boleyn were trying to lead Henry down. And you could really see that Henry was worried about doing the right thing by God. But if he could be convinced that he would not be subject to eternal damnation if these Protestants, if there was some truth in what the Protestants were saying, then this was a useful tool to get rid of Catherine. Now, in the, in the films and some of the dramatizations, it seems often like a very quick thing. He decides to get rid of Catherine and he marries Anne. But actually, this process took five and a half years to get sorted. And in some ways, in the end, it wasn't really sorted. The Pope didn't relent. And Henry, as a last resort, declared himself head of the English church, 
and therefore he had the authority to annul this marriage on the grounds that he should never have married Catherine in the first place because she had been married to his brother. Catherine had been arguing with the Pope saying that her marriage with Arthur had never been consummated and therefore was void, but Henry stuck to his guns. He and Catherine were married for 24 years and the period of his life that everyone focuses on, his six wives, was only the last 14 years of his life. So Cardinal Wolsey, through all this, had been the one negotiating with the Pope and he was the one who was insisting that unless the Pope agreed to it, Henry really couldn't do this. And we looked just now how Henry reluctantly had to have Wolsey arrested and he died before he came to trial. And he was replaced as Henry's sort of chief minister by Thomas Howard, the third Duke of Norfolk, who, who many people paint as the real villain through this stage of Henry's life. In a way, he was kind of pimping out members of his family in order to gain personal power. And this didn't go down particularly well. There were uprisings against the king, and these were sort of half religious and half economic. People were pissed off. They were poor. Things seemed to be getting worse. And now they were told they couldn't worship God in the way that they had done all their lives. There was an uprising in Lincoln, which spread to York. And then there was this huge uprising known as the Pilgrimage of Grace, probably the biggest sort of popular uprising there has ever been in the country. The Pilgrimage of Grace was led by a man called Robert Ask, but they had to contend with Cromwell and Henry's army, and the uprising was put down and various key members were executed. Henry went on to execute a huge number of um, churchmen and, and people who disagreed with the Reformation. As I mentioned before, Mary, his daughter, was known as Bloody Mary because when she came to the throne, she tried to reverse everything and started um, burning all these Protestant bishops. But she couldn't really compete with Henry, who executed more notable Englishmen than any other monarch before or since. And he and Cromwell were pretty ruthless in cementing this new state of affairs. Um, there was an act of succession passed in 1533, where Princess Mary was declared illegitimate, and Henry's marriage to Anne was officially approved, which meant that Anne's children would be next in line to the throne. And Henry is recognised as the head of the Church of England. Our monarchs still are heads of the Church of England. And the Pope starts the process of, of excommunication, uh, which took a little while, and it only really happened after Henry had killed even more churchmen. So Henry and Anne are married... They settle down, but things seem to quite quickly go wrong. Anne will not settle meekly into her role as consort to Henry. The wives of kings are supposed to sit there quietly and shut up and not cause any problems. But Anne was headstrong. She was very intelligent. She was very connected to what was going on in the world. She was pushing Henry to go further with his reforms. Um, and, and she was showing a strong, independent spirit. 
She was also not producing any male heirs. Only a girl, Elizabeth. And then in 1536, Catherine of Aragon died. And the following day, Henry, instead of dressing all in black, he dressed all in yellow with this white feather in his bonnet, which is a shame that he showed that lack of respect to someone who, as I say, he'd been married to for 24 years. And it had seemed to be a reasonably happy marriage. Unfortunately, she didn't give him any sons. As I say, Anne is in a similar position, having only produced a female child. But now she's pregnant again and Henry is feeling really optimistic. And a few weeks later, Henry is at a tournament. Now, we saw before how in his youth he was this very dynamic, athletic young man. And he loved hunting and jousting and tournaments. Um, and at this tournament, he is unseated from his horse and he lands very heavily and he's knocked out and he's out cold for some time. He's also received a nasty gash in his leg. When the news reaches Anne, she goes into shock and miscarries. And this seems to really mark the, the, the start of the full decline of the marriage and relationships between Henry and Anne. Various people have said that Henry seems to show a personality change after this accident, after having been unconscious for so long, that he becomes cold and hard and aggressive and, and crucially becomes quite paranoid after this accident. And he also has this festering wound in his leg that just will not heal. He has this for the rest of his life and it sort of becomes ulcerated and he can't walk properly, he can't exercise properly, he can't ride his horse properly. He grows bigger and bigger and fatter and fatter. And, you know, if you go to the Tower of London, you can see his suits of armour getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, but it seems to be this change in his personality, which is, the, which is the worst thing, allied to the machinations of Cromwell. This does not go well for Anne or for the royal court, really. Cromwell got involved in all these sort of schemes and plots and, and, and working behind the scenes and undermining people and particularly trying to undermine Anne, who he saw as a sort of threat to his relationship with Henry. And so Cromwell creates this web of intrigue at the court, which, which Henry's caught up in. Anne won't give him a son, and this leads to her being accused of sexual misconduct. Particularly, she's accused of adultery with her own brother alongside witchcraft and various other claims and as we all know this eventually leads to Anne being executed beheaded as well as her poor brother George so that's Anne out of the picture and meanwhile another young lady at court has caught Henry's eye this is Jane Seymour and the day after Anne's execution, Henry announces his engagement to Jane. And this became Henry's most successful marriage, really. This could have been it. We could have been talking about the three wives of Henry VIII, not the six, because Jane gave birth to a son, Edward. And Henry was delighted. He'd finally pulled it off. At last, he has a legitimate male heir. But sadly, 
Poor Jane died soon afterwards from complications caused by the birth, at which point, as I said before, Cromwell goes to work, trying to find a good political marriage for Henry. You know, stop shagging the ladies-in-waiting at court. You need to marry a powerful foreign princess of some sort. Um, And he decides on Anne of Cleves. Cleves being part of a power block in Western Germany that was a potential bulwark against the Holy Roman Empire because relations between England and the Holy Roman Emperor weren't great at this time. So Cromwell convinced Henry that this would be a really good alliance. And famously, there's this portrait done by Holbein of Anne and brought over to Henry to say, look, she looks okay." But the story goes that when she turns up, Henry thinks that Holbein has painted rather a flattering painting of Anne. Well, essentially, he can't stand her and she can't stand him. How much of that was because of what she looked like, uh, we can't say. But it was not a happy marriage. But luckily, Anne managed to get out of it pretty quickly without coming to any harm. And that marriage was annulled. But it seems like by this point, Thomas Cromwell has fallen out of favour with Henry. We look just now at how Cromwell had been at the heart of all this skullduggery and plotting at court, which went on for the whole of Henry's life. And the problem with setting up this web of intrigue and deceit and lies and conspiracy is you can very easily get caught in it yourself. And that seems to be what happened with Cromwell. He's now accused of all the things that he's been accusing everybody else of. And Henry executes him. And I think he immediately regrets it because Cromwell was in many ways running the country. Henry, as we saw in the last episode, didn't have a lot of interest in actually the day-to-day business of politics and government, but Cromwell loved it and he was a very good, if ruthless and hard-hearted minister. So Cromwell is executed and it's easy during these years to just concentrate on the Queen's, but Henry was still trying to get involved in international politics He planned to invade France and in the meantime, to get ready for it, he wanted to to deliver a hammer blow to the Scots, just like his ancestor Edward I. There was a battle at Solway Moss, which the English won. The young King James V of Scotland died. Henry tried to unite the English and Scottish crowns by marrying Edward to James's successor, Mary, the famous Mary Queen of Scots. But this never happens and it leads to eight years of war between England and Scotland. And this war is later called the Rough Wooing, which is a sort of fairly dark attempt at black humour. But there you go. I guess they thought it was funny at the time. But on the back of this, the French try to invade England, but don't get past the Isle of Wight. There's a battle in the Solent. This leads to another treaty, which was actually financially pretty successful for Henry. Um, It ensured him quite a big income from the French. And Henry, in some ways, becomes this sort of representation of everything that's going wrong in England. He's hugely obese with a waist measurement of 54 inches. He had to be moved around with the help of these mechanical devices. It wasn't just his leg. He was covered with these kind of pus-filled boils. He probably had gout. 
Now, if someone tells you that he had syphilis, and it's usually a sort of staunch anti-royalist, well, look at our kings from the past, you know, Henry VIII had syphilis. He didn't have syphilis. There is no medical evidence that he did, and certainly he didn't pass anything on to any of his children. So that has been dismissed. But he had a huge number of health problems. He wasn't done with trying it on with young women and trying to get a male heir. His next marriage after Anne of Cleves is to the teenaged Catherine Howard, who is the niece of the Earl of Norfolk. And she's a really sad case. I mean, she was a very naive teenager. She hadn't really had much experience of the royal court. She was flattered that she would be marrying the king, despite the fact that he was this monster by this stage. And being a young girl, she flirted a lot. She's nowhere near as smart and as switched on as Anne Boleyn. She doesn't realise quite how precarious her position is. She starts an affair with a guy at court called Thomas Culpepper. And this was an actual affair. There are letters to prove this. This wasn't something that was cooked up because Henry wanted to get rid of her. And all this court intrigue, all these stories come out about how before she came to court, she had these two relationships, one with her music teacher, Henry Mannox, and another with a secretary in the household where she was living, Francis Deerham. When she was accused of these affairs, she claimed that Mannox had forced himself on her. And indeed, it does look like it was an abusive relationship. It was essentially rape, as she was only 13 years old at the time. Her relationship with Deerham seems to have been more consensual, however, as was her later relationship with this man Thomas Culpepper. And all this stuff came out. So unfortunately, quite quickly after marrying Henry, poor young Catherine Howard is beheaded, which leaves Henry with one last desperate attempt. He marries an older woman, Catherine Parr. She is a widow and she outlived the king. She went on to marry Jane Seymour's brother, Thomas, and was the first woman to publish an original work under her own name in English, in England. So she could have gone on to live a long and happy life. Unfortunately, she died not long after in childbirth, as so many young women did at the time. So Henry had managed to have these four children who lived beyond childbirth. Henry Fitzroy, his illegitimate son, who died when he was a teenager. Mary, who went on to be queen. Edward, who took the throne after Henry's death. And of course, Elizabeth, daughter of Anne Boleyn, who went on to become one of our greatest monarchs, but who, as we all know, died ostensibly as the Virgin Queen, which left another battle for succession, which we will come to when we get to Elizabeth. But before then, we have got Edward and Mary. And I will also put in a, a supplementary episode about Lady Jane Grey. I talked about her before, the, the Nine Days Queen. So I will look at her as well. But Henry eventually died probably of kidney failure due to his combined health conditions and his um, weight problems. He'd planned to have a big fancy tomb, but it wasn't finished at the time of his death. It only was finished much later on when it was used for Lord Nelson's tomb at St Paul's Cathedral. 
Henry instead was interred in um, St George's Chapel in Windsor Castle next to Jane Seymour, who I guess in his mind had been his most successful wife. And what did he leave us? Well, he left us with those extraordinary children whose stories we will look at in the following episodes. And he left us with a subject for many school children to, to study at school. And he left us with this image, this indelible image of this great square man with his square head, his legs firmly planted like two great tree trunks. In those amazing paintings by Holbein, in which you really feel that you can grasp Henry's character. And Holbein didn't pull any punches. You know, he was not painting a nice and kindly figure. So that's the end of Henry VIII and his six wives. And his only surviving son, Edward, is poised to take the throne as Edward VI. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's my pleasure to welcome back the historians John Guy and Julia Fox, the husband and wife writing team, whose most recent book, just out at the time of this recording, is Hunting the Falcon. Anne Boleyn and the marriage that shook Europe. So welcome back, Julia and John. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start with Anne. We talked a little in the last episode about how Henry's relationship with her very closely mapped onto his relationship with France and the other various competing powers in Europe. If it was going well with France, Anne was in favour. And if it was going badly, Anne was out of favour. Now, as I understand it... When Henry was trying to keep the Habsburgs happy, which included Catherine of Aragon's own family in Spain, then being married to Catherine was a great asset for Henry. But when he fell out with the Habsburgs and starts courting France as a potential ally, he turned his attentions to Anne, who had strong French connections. So can we look at that? I mean, Anne went to Paris when she was younger, and was it through the French that she got interested in the Reformation? The work that we did on Anne in France is rather special, really, because we went into her life in France for the first time, I think. Uh, mm. Most people dismiss it uh, in a few pages. Yeah, I mean, we've got five chapters. The best was 10 pages. Yeah. So we've got it, five chapters. It yeah. colours everything, everything about Anne. Yeah. Right. Anne Boleyn goes to France, age 13. Uh, to be a demoiselle, a maid of honour to Queen Claude. Uh, and uh, the French royal women are terribly interested in the miracle stories of Mary Magdalene. Uh, and they want to investigate these. Mary Magdalene could get you off anything. 
You know, she could just <laughs> wave a finger and, you know, you could have lived a life of debauchery and you go straight to heaven under all of these stories. And they were rather skeptical about them. And yeah. they wanted them investigated. And they get Saint-Jacques Lefebvre de Tarple to come and to basically give them seminars. And, of course, Anne was watching. Mm. And the whole thing about the French Reformation is it's not like the English Reformation where, you know, Henry was opposed to Luther from the very, very start. Of course, the French Reformers are not Lutherans. Most of them don't deny the Mass. They don't deny the Pope. They just want to yeah. reform the Church. Make right. it to the Gospels and, you know, make charity, you know, much more based on people giving things in the right spirit, not just basically, you know, signing a buying check, a check because it's like, an, it's, it's like, yeah. an, just like buying a ship or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Okay. And they produce these little books for people to read so that the scriptures could be read and understood. Right. And, and so the French... They modernise, but they don't break away from the Pope. That's no, right. the right. Berlins would have liked them to. Anna's queen had an agenda. Oh, yes. She's the first English queen to have a, a real uh, agenda, and it's mm. mainly in religion and welfare and charity and monastic reform, all the things that the French royal w women were interested in. And so that's where this is coming from. It's yeah. not coming from Luther. In fact, when someone tried to present her with a Lutheran book, she refused it. Yes. She knew what it was and, and absolutely refused it. She did. But she, I think she would also be very, very wary anyway, because she had to tread quite a fine, mm. a fine line. But I guess that all comes a bit later when she's returned to England. So how long was she actually in France? Seven, Seven years. years. Gosh, OK. Seven yeah, years. it's a long yeah. time. She sees a lot, doesn't she? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you can see Anne, can't you? Mm. Um, you can see her seeing the way in which women can exert power. I and mean, you could mention the Duke de Berry at this point, I think. That's well, she mean. sees the French royal women conducting almost an, indip well, an independent diplomacy. I mean, mm. Louise of Savoy negotiates a very important treaty, you know, and Francis just leaves her to it. Mm. Uh, and Marguerite of Angoulême, yes, when yes, Francis yes. is captured in the Italian wars and he's, in, he's a prisoner for a while in Madrid, you know, she goes to Spain and you know, tries to negotiate to free him and you know, look after him. And, I mean, she's very, very active in protecting the French... Reformers, whole yes. circles of French reformers are protected by Marguerite of Angoulême. I mean, the Henrys, though, are completely sort of different animals to any of this. I mean, he's an ideological Catholic, if we can sort of just use that phrase, <laughs> interestingly, up to the time when, you know, he wants Anne and he, the Pope won't give the divorce. Uh, but then he discovers something very different. But that's a matter of when you have a problem, when modern governments have a problem, they tend to send for academics or researchers and have a think tank research group. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens here. And it's centered on um, Durham House, which was one of the fine houses on the Strand. It had belonged to the Bishop of Durham, but Wolsey had sequestered it, and then it was given to the Berlins. And there's a research team that includes um, Thomas Cranmer and others, a guy called Edward Fox, also who was very important in diplomacy and later became a bishop and was very close to Anne. And they basically do research, the sort of research that Renaissance intellectuals did. What are the origins of the papacy? What are the origins of the authority of the papacy? And they discover a new history of England, going back to the Anglo-Saxons, to the reign of William the Conqueror, where the king controlled the church. And uh, the Pope was very relatively not unimportant in religious terms, but was unimportant in political terms. Mm -hmm. uh, and they start saying you know, that this is the true historical mm -hmm. origins and Henry's supreme head of the church. And uh, you know he can control the monasteries. He can control the clergy. He's directly accountable to God. He's not accountable to parliament. And Henry laps up all mm -hmm. of this stuff. Um, it just fits hand in glove with his character. And so Anne and Henry between them, 
She's pushing for, if you like, religious reform. He's pushing for political reform of the church in which he gets the share of the power. So there are reform movements in France. I mean, I guess this leads to the Huguenot movement, the French Protestants, but it doesn't take hold the way it does in England. Now, as I see it, the French want change, but not a complete break with the Pope. But Henry is manoeuvred into going much further. I mean, a very interesting uh, sort of series of developments come. Archbishop Cranmer becomes Archbishop of Canterbury because the previous Archbishop had died yeah. and he's the one that's going to help Henry get um, the divorce from Catherine yeah. and get the marriage, if possible, get the marriage with and legalised. But he starts to go through a series of religious conversions that take actually, you know, I mean, the best part of 15 plus years. And he moves more and more to a completely reformed Protestant position, uh-huh. so that by right. you know after Henry's death, he's a fully fledged Protestant. Yeah. And Cromwell, well, put it this way: when the Germans came to negotiate with Henry, they called Cromwell Lutheran. And you could right. argue that he takes one to no one. <laughs> I mean, I mean, historians argue about this, and will argue all day long about yeah. this. I mean, Cromwell was extremely clever because he knew that if Henry thought he was a Lutheran, he would be out, right. possibly on the executioner's block. So he does incredibly clever things, like in 1536, after Anne's fall, when he becomes much more powerful because she's gone and she's no longer there to influence Henry, he can step into the shoes of being, you know, if you like, the king's new minister. He gets himself made deputy supreme head of the church. It was a, a mouthful of a title called vicegerent in spirituals, but it just means Henry's <laughs> number two in the church. And he issues things called the Ten Articles, mm. uh, and, other, and he issues other documents. And the Ten Articles are pretty much a translation of the Lutheran Confession of Augsburg into English. And in fact, very, very interestingly, when they're printed, they are printed back to back with the Lutheran Confession of Augsburg. So he's producing something which isn't ostensibly or you know demonstrably Lutheran, but actually has hugely Lutheran mm. overtones when you see it in the in in the context. I mean Cromwell, you know, he's a in in twenty first century terms, he's a Protestant. He's more he's more Protestant than Catholic. Uh, but no, Cromwell is an absolutely key player in, in And he and I will work together on some things, but they're not great bosom buddies. In fact they're enemies on yes. many things. I mean they both wanted an English Bible. They can agree on that. Yes. They both wanted to help out some people who were in, you know, under threat yes. of heresy proceedings and in the end it was about power. I mean Anne I think historians not just by tradition, but I mean, even around now, it, it's difficult for them to take on board that Anne was the king's minister after you know Wolsey was chucked out. Uh, mm. The first one had gone, and Anne was because yep. she was a woman. Well, in Tudor England, you know, it's a it's a patriarchal society. Woman can't be a chief minister, but actually, to all intents and purposes, she was. Yeah. Uh, and the, and the French have mm. described her as the woman that you know pulls all the strings. Yeah, uh, everybody else is, you know, all the other councillors are as nothing. Oh. And then the, the story of Cromwell's rise to power, it used to be thought 20, 30 years ago, it was the consensus that, you know, Wolsey um, falls and then sort of Cromwell basically mysteriously pops up, you know, about 18 months later and comes in and all, almost from the word go is the 40th fledged chief minister. Nobody thinks that now. It took him years to win that position. He didn't fully get those powers until Anne was dead. Mm. that he gets that all-important thing, he gets the stamp of the king's signature. Mm. So he can send letters out that the king's never seen, but he can stamp them Henry Rex. Mm. You can see why Hilary Mantel was so fascinated by him. I mean, he's a really interesting character, this working-class boy from Putney who moved his way up to being Henry's chief minister. 
and he helped Henry in so many ways. He made sure money was coming in. He, he, I mean, he had something of the modern businessman about him, didn't he? Cromwell's own backstory meant that he understood the value of the Antwerp trade. That's something that we learned that nobody knew, that, um, or at least nobody had worked out properly. Mm-hmm. Everybody knew that Cromwell had been in Italy in some capacity, that he'd worked for the Frescobaldi Bank in Florence, that he'd gone, right. he'd gone and, and perhaps was connected in some way with the merchant adventurer. In fact, he'd become a, a, a clerk, a secretary, working for the merchant adventurers in Antwerp, which was the main cloth and luxury goods centre and the main credit market of Northern Europe. And in fact, at London then, contrary to what everybody thinks, probably in the 21st century, was in economic terms a suburb of Antwerp. Antwerp was the metropolis hmm. and, and London was the sort of also ran suburb. But Cromwell had a very big side hustle, as the Americans would say, uh, in the cloth <laughs> industry. And he was exporting cloth on his own account and making money that way. That's one way he made a living in those early years. And he knew that all the merchants didn't want the French alliance. They wanted the imperial mm. alliance. And so he was pushing very hard mm. for that. And in the end, he got it. Yeah. And is that what the marriage with Anne of Cleves was all about? The marriage with Anne of Cleves is an attempt at a time when Henry has fallen out with France and he's not quite really fully to commit to Charles. But most of all, he is most worried by the fact that the new Pope, Paul III, has excommunicated him and declared him a pariah and deprived of his kingdom and a heretic and a schismatic and all of those things. And he fears an invasion. And what he fears most is an invasion in which Charles joins with Francis together and they come in as a sort of two-pronged way. And so he's looking for a a third power block and he finds it potentially in the Germans and in the Schwalkaldic League. He's looking to that. And that is Cromwell's reason for the pleased marriage. I have to say that, I mean, I don't know what you think, Julia, but I don't think that Henry was ever really totally persuaded right. to it. He was sold yeah, it. He, he was sold it by Cromwell yeah. as as, oh, the, as the solution in a great yeah. difficulty. So Cromwell's trying to be the master manipulator, but as so often seems to happen, at the height of his power, it all starts to go wrong for him. Why, why exactly did Henry turn on him, have him executed? How much of it was to do with Henry not liking Anne of Cleves? And how much of it was for other reasons? Well, Anne of Cleves certainly comes into it quite a lot. In a big way. Henry felt very, very belittled by all of that. Well, Cromwell pushed for that that marriage. And and he married Henry to the wrong wife. It just didn't work. There was a complicated argument, which in a nutshell and made very simple, is was Anne of Cleves actually free to marry had she been pre-contracted to somebody else? And if she'd been pre-contracted to somebody else, that was like a sort of marriage in embryo. Uh, and she was not necessarily free to, ma- uh. to marry. And Cromwell basically assured the king that he had the document that proved there was no pre-contract, but he didn't. Uh. He only got it quite a bit later, and Henry remembered that. Uh. And then, of course, the other thing is that... Well, there's jealousy. the jealousy, but also Henry, um, the Duke of Norfolk, who was Cromwell's bitterest enemies, yes. um, discovered that Cromwell had been protecting um, not just or any other ordinary Protestants, but people who had denied the the mass completely. Mm. Um, so, you know, basically were, you know, complete re- 100% reformers beyond yeah. the pale who everybody was burning in the 16th century, protect, protecting them. And um, because Cromwell doesn't just fall, you know, for the marriage, he falls for treason and for heresy. Mm. So that's written into the Bill of Attainder. Yeah. I mean, Cromwell was, it's just a masterclass in how to serve a king, but also how to steer a king. Uh, by working, mm. you know, sort of with him, but also partly behind his back. 
uh, and achieving things that if Henry saw them in black and white, he would never really have agreed to. But things which, you know, when presented in the right way, you can just sort of go along. Yes, yeah. but mm. Henry's no cipher. Yeah, no, no. I think right. to just think that Cromwell is somehow pulling the strings and Henry is the puppet is, is very wrong. You, anybody who did that did that to Henry at their peril. Right. So it was a demonstration of authority in many ways towards <laughs> Cromwell. Was it a demonstration of authority? That's quite hard to answer, actually. Uh, I think Henry genuinely believed yeah, the he, heresy angle. Yeah, he uh, right. And, you, okay. and he and believed the treason. Henry's he court. Treason. Yes, he believed the treason. Henry's always very insecure. He looks for treason all around him all the time. It does seem like a big mistake, though, to execute Cromwell. Uh, I, mean, I mean, what was happening in Europe at this time? Did Henry not need Cromwell? By the time you've got to Cromwell's execution, France and the Habsburgs are falling out. And so Henry feels secure again. And um, so he chums up with the last years of the reign with um, Charles. He fights France. He goes over in person again to Boulogne and directs the Boulogne campaign. He spends an arm and a leg, you know, capturing basically a, you know, a town that then costs him even more to defend. And the, in the English, you know, years later have to essentially give back in Henry's son's reign. Um, many of the Privy Council are actually against this, um, at least they may not be against the Boulogne campaign, but they're against trying to hold uh -huh. on to uh -huh. Boulogne. But meanwhile, of course, Henry's sort of solved his life um, experience problem. But he finds that, if you like, I mean, his perfect wife was Jane Seymour. Yes. Um, the, one, the one after Anne, Anne Boleyn, who has the son, keeps her mouth shut, has her uh, motto, and to obey and serve, dies. Uh, and then can't commit any wrong, of course. She becomes the ideal wife, but he finds the next best thing in um, Catherine Parth. The last wife. wife, yeah. Last, yeah. Now, we've skipped over one there, Catherine Howard. And in the background, we have her uncle, the powerful figure of Thomas Howard, the Duke of Norfolk, who was also the uncle of Anne Boleyn. Now, some people paint him as something of the villain of the piece. Was he manipulating these marriages? Was he in some ways pimping out Anne Boleyn, for instance, for personal influence at court? I don't know that he necessarily wanted that marriage as such. It happened. Right. Um, Henry sees this very pretty young girl and he's, he's young again. So did either of these marriages actually benefit him then? He's very powerful all the way through the reign, right. isn't he, Howard? Mm. Um, he's never chief minister or anything right. like that, would he have liked to be, maybe? So he was. He didn't particularly promote the marriage to, well, to he didn't, Catherine? He didn't promote it sort of too actively, I don't think. It was uh, very handy. He, it's it's very handy, handy and he's happy with it. <laughs> yeah. um, of course, he didn't know how it was going to turn out, and that made it very much worse because then two members of his family are chopped yeah. uh, as Henry's wives, which uh, uh. is exactly good for your family's reputation. I think Catherine Howard's is a desperately sad story. She seems to have been very naive compared to Anne Boleyn, who was who was really wise to what was going on around her at court. And Catherine seems to be like a little lamb wandering into a field full of wolves. She was much younger, of course. Don't forget that by the time Henry even cast his eyes on Anne, she's mid-twenties. Yeah. Catherine Howard is probably still in her teens, probably 17, 18. We don't completely know whether she would want to marry Henry, I doubt. She liked mm. being queen. We know that because she had been a, a maid, a sort of lady-in-waiting to Anne of Cleves and suddenly she was elevated to queenship yeah. and she loved it. When Anne of Cleves came in, 
and by now Catherine Howard was queen and curtsied, you know, terribly, 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 <laughs> rather like, you know, the sort of curtsy that you get from Fergie, Duchess of York, um, yes. sort of very deep curtsy. And she came to enjoy that. But by then, Henry, of course, was not as he had been physically uh, without Berlin. By then, he really has got this awful suppurating ulcer on his leg. He perhaps had mechanical aids even to help him get around the palaces. I mean, going to bed with him uh, was not going to be every dream. No. Um, and of course, she's got the young men that she's known from her, her early years. Yeah. So in her case, I mean, in Anne Boleyn's case, the charges of adultery seem to be entirely trumped up as a way of getting yes. rid of her. Yeah. But, but in, in Catherine Howard's case, she does seem to genuinely have been having these affairs. She certainly had a relationship with Henry Mannox when she was younger. Uh, he was her music teacher yeah. and uh, wrote about certain parts of Catherine Howard's body, which he knew intimately. Right. Um, and she then, of course, dies because it is said she slept with Thomas Culpepper and they yeah. found all the various hidey holes in the palaces. And she probably did. Mm. You've got to be realistic here. You're not going to keep looking for little hidey holes just to, I don't know, discuss Plato, are you? Um, so it is likely. I, that's what my hidey holes are all for. <laughs> Always one discussing Why? Um, but it's the prehistory, yeah. isn't it? It's the it's prehistory. The prehistory. Yes. Yeah. Because. But that prehistory, she was she was like thirteen years old or something, wasn't she? When she was very young. Yeah. Yeah. Anne, it's a different matter, obviously. Um, and Anne sort of laid herself open to it because when she became queen, she reorganised the way the court, the Queen's court, operated. When she'd mm. been in France, she saw a different way. In England, under Catherine of Aragon, the Queen's side and the King's side had their own different protocols. And with the Queen's side, it was largely female. You would get mm. ambassadors, you would get male officials, but you didn't have men coming in just to talk to the ladies, to dance, to perhaps read poetry, to have mm. music. And Anne allowed that to happen. So from the point of view of anybody who wanted to say anything against Anne, you could say that she is presiding over this court um, of pleasure, debauchery. Mm. 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 And she did overstep the mark and of course she spoke to her in a way they wouldn't have spoken to Catherine. So you can see how she laid herself open to that. With Catherine Howard, it was a different thing. I think she was very naive. She mm. was quite young. How she thought she'd get away with it in Henry's court where everything is eyes and ears. I mean, one dreads to think. You do feel, well, I feel very sorry for both of them, of course. But yes, you do feel very sorry for her. And Henry's vindictive. He's been betrayed again, you see. It's betrayal. He's never at <laughs> fault with anything. But there are yeah. people about him who betray him. Blame is um, for other people. Though. Absolutely. He's never to blame. It's, you know, yeah. other people are always to blame. Mm. And he's never anywhere near when people are executed. So. It pulls the wires from a phone. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, you can see why his reign has been such rich material for novels and films and TV series. I mean, I think there's a very sort of modern aspect to it. 
So thank you so much for talking to me about this extraordinary man one more time. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Bye. Are you working on a new tome together? Not at the moment. We've got one or two ideas. Would it still be in the Tudor realm, do you think? Well, that's or? our expertise. Yeah, probably. We want a bit of screen interest in what we're doing at the minute. So we'll see what happens. Uh, but, I mean, we know, I mean, you know as well as we do, I mean, you know better than we do, that talk is cheap in that industry. So, um, uh, y- yes. The Mary Queen of Scots did eventually well, make in Hollywood. Yes, We quite believe it when yeah. we got this phone call yeah. that they were actually going to go ahead with that film. Yeah. When working title called, they said, could you come? And I said, oh, not another one. You know, it's yes. Just okay, so I didn't realise that. So the the Mary Queen of Scots film, was that based on your book on Mary Queen of Scots, John? My Heart is My Own. It was, oh, yeah. It was indeed. Yeah. And oh, it's got right. the screen, it's actually got its own screen credit. I know, you've it's got a whole screen to yourself. It's based on this book. Uh, we were very heavily involved with that. Yes, I was very heavily involved. And how was that? I mean, if a novelist sells the screen rights to a book and parts get changed in a film, I mean, it's not the end of the world exactly, just very, very annoying. But I would think as a historian, you're fighting to protect actual historical facts. I said to Deborah Haywood at mm. the end, she, you know, what do I think of, you know, she was a co-producer, but she was really, the yeah. woman. she was the woman who did everything, you know, and I said, if you're going to do a, a movie mm. on the strength of that book, I don't think you could have done it better. No. So Willimon is an absolute star to work with. Right. I mean, he was, you know, there was, mm. Of course, there were compromises. Yeah. And of course, and there were lots of occasions when they did something that wasn't quite historical or veered away. It was often, though, to do with the colour palettes of the shots. Uh, and that those sort of, those sort of issues, which an, a, a regular historian just wouldn't think of, but I can tell you, I mean, they hired me. I mean, I mean, the good bits when they buy the intellectual property because you just sign your name, and you know, a yeah. of dosh comes in. Uh, but they <laughs> re-signed me up to be the um, you know historical consultant advisor. Come, yeah, and that yeah, that was serious that work. Was. I mean, I but was, on the other hand, darling, you're one of the few men in London who got loads and loads of kisses from, from Margot, Margot Robbie. Robbie yes. <laughs> But, um, I mean, every time they asked me, it went across the desk. If they deviated from it, there was a theatrical or there was some sort of, you know, production reason for it. Yes. But, so they knew exactly what they were doing and why they were yes. doing it. And I, yes. Uh, famously, they invented a meeting between Elizabeth and Mary, didn't they, that never actually took place. But I guess for dramatic reasons, they had to put that in there. Otherwise... It's just the two of them writing letters to each other, which isn't desperately cinematic. I respect that. It's a different medium. You even had a little mm-hmm. part, didn't you? I've got a cameo part in it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, what, who did you play? My, um, he plays a cleric sitting yeah. at a table. <laughs> Next to Brendan Coyle. Next yeah. to, yeah, Brendan Coyle, you know, from Downton. Excellent. Yeah, he was very naughty and at the grapes. Yeah. <laughs> Telling you the fruit on the table. but got you, you watch this scene. You watch this scene, depending on the take. The pile of fruit is at a slightly different height. <laughs> you must never fiddle with the props. <laughs> oh, well, it's been fantastic having you on. and um, I hope it was okay. Oh, it was fantastic. It was That was really interesting. So thank you so much for joining me. And good luck with everything. That was Julia Fox and John Guy. Be sure to tune in for the next episode where we see what happens when Henry's young son, Edward VI, takes the throne. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops. 
Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Hickson, 2023. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.